Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. Um, We thank you for the time of worship that we had leading into this, where even with our bodies, we stand uh, not simply uh, as a matter of clearing our diaphragms to sing, but we stand uh, because we are in the presence of you. We stand to show respect. We stand to be engaged. And so, Lord, we thank you that for those who are able, we can worship you not only with our hearts and our minds, but with our bodies. And as we look at what it looks like in your word to worship you, not merely with the outside structures, but with the internal heart, uh, we ask that you accomplish in us according to all that your Holy Spirit has deemed fitting uh, through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you're joining us today or have tuned in the last couple weeks, um, we've been working through a series since the beginning of January called Jesus at the Center. And the whole goal of it is to help us to see Jesus at the center of the Bible as we endeavor to together as a church body, for those who want to join us through the app or through the plan in the back, to read through the whole of the Bible in two years, two chapters a day, six days a week. Robert Murray McChain was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, who famously put together a plan that many of you have done called the McChain Bible Reading Plan. It takes you through uh, the New Testament and the Psalms twice in any year and takes you through the Old Testament once in a year. It's four chapters a day. It's split with a family reading and a private reading or a morning and an evening reading. It's a great plan for those who are looking um, to do it, for those who keep up with the pace of it. But I want you to notice what McChain himself says about Bible reading. He says this, he says, you may read your Bible and pray over it till you die. You may wait on the preached word every Sabbath day, but if you are not brought to cleave to Jesus, to look to him, to believe in him, to cry out with inward adoration, my Lord and my God, how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty, then the outward observance of the ordinance is all in vain to you. So what's the point of McChain's words here? That to read the Bible Christianly, to read the Bible as one to whom the Holy Spirit has enlivened your heart to faith is to encounter Christ in all of scripture. And this is a series that's meant to help us do just that, that we might study God's word diligently and daily, but also see Christ vividly on every page of it. And today we're closing out the Old Testament with the latter portion of Israel's history. So it's the latter portion of what the Jews called the writings, the history prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we've done through this series, we're going to continue to do today. We look at three things, having three goals. We're going to survey the story, see what the story is. We're going to study the story, how we read it in light of its context and, uh, and uh, grammar. And then lastly, we'll savor the savior of the story, which is exactly what Machane just encouraged us to do, to see Christ in it. And so to begin today, let's survey the story together. Now, the main storyline of all scripture, when you leave this, I want you to know, this series, that the main storyline of scripture is God's plan to redeem a broken people through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the good news so good. It's the story. It's understanding our problem. The gospel is the good news that God has done it. That through Jesus, God has done everything to restore sinners and save, or to everything required to save sinners and to restore us to God. Now, the idea of restoration 
That is, what happens when we're saved can only be understood if we understand the story itself. If we understand what it is we're being restored to. We're being restored to perfection. What God created in the Garden of Eden was that we were God's perfect people in God's perfect place, living and being ruled by God's perfect presence. That's what sin ruined, what Adam and Eve lost, and the rest of his scripture's story shows that God himself would redeem. And last week, we took kind of a story break in the wisdom literature, where time stood still, and we saw what life was like at the peak of God's kingdom. But here, in the latter portion of the writings, the narrative resumes. The story picks up where the prophets left off. A number of weeks ago, when we finished the latter prophets, we saw that God's people were removed from the promised land and led into exile in Babylon because of their sin. They broke God's covenant, they worshiped idols, and they forgot the most important truth that we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses reminds God's people of this. He says, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. Do not forget, Israel, that the Lord your God is distinct. Worship him. Now make no mistake, and we can't if we've read the story, exile, the removal from the promised land and captivity into Babylon was God's discipline on a faithless and a forgetful people. But if you remember what we read in the book of Jeremiah, God was not only going to discipline Israel, but through discipline, he was going to redeem Israel. God was going to begin to bring to bear change at a heart level through the miraculous work of his Holy Spirit. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 to declare to Israel that he was going to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. But do you remember that last clause that God also in his mercy was going to rebuild and to replant? And today as we examine the books of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, in First and Second Chronicles, we again see this geographic and narrative progression and also a theological progression. And the geographic progression of this book, the story progression of the book is this, replanted and rebuilt by God's sovereign hand. Replanted and rebuilt by God's sovereign hand. As God's people are pulled out of the promised land on account of their sin and ruled by other nations, God, by his sheer might, by the power of his sovereign rule, is going to use these nations who are disciplining Israel to actually produce change in Israel. And even more so, by the power of these nations, God is going to send his people back to the promised land. And this leads us to the main theological progression in this history. What's behind the story of replanting and rebuilding? One big simple truth. God is faithful. That's it. That's the big picture story. God is faithful. What do we see in these passages? We see nothing short than the stunning, sovereign, and spectacular faithfulness of God to do everything he said he was going to do. And so today, we're going to endeavor to see Jesus in the history, part two, the first part being what we looked at in the book of Kings and Joshua and Judges. And all we're going to see is this, is we're going to see the power and promise of God's word. When you read these books... Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles, you are seeing the power and promise of God's word. And this is important because have you ever wondered how you might get out of whatever funk, whatever trial, whatever sin, 
whatever pit, whatever wound, whatever trial you're in. And we see in this that only God can do it. That God can get you out of wherever you are, but how will he do it? And that's the most important question you could ever ask. And this illustrates it. He will do it by fulfilling his promise and by calling you to his word. We can see the assurance of God's power and his promise in a key text of ours today. What Marshall just read is the context that we'll look at um, for the, the passage I'm about to read. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream that terrifies him. And he wants to know what this dream is. And Daniel, one of the Jewish exiles in the land, God has so given him an interpretation for that that will save all of the wise men from being killed. Because if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know his dream, he's going to get answers just by killing anyone who could tell him the answer to his dream. And Daniel's going to speak. And I want you to see here, as he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, two things. The power and control of God over human history according to his word. Look with me at Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 through 35. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and in whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall be over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And the iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be mixed in, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is of this tall statue with different parts and components, but a rock comes and smashes the statue to pieces. And here is the interpretation of that. That Daniel here tells us that out of the nations, God was going to bring a nation, his nation. Out of exile, God was going to bring an eternal kingdom. Now, how do we trace this? This theme is through all these books, and this is where we will together study the story of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. And the primary genre for these books is what we saw in the earlier histories. It's, it's narrative, which means to understand it, you need to understand the story. If you don't get the story, you're not going to get what God wants you to get out of it. But there's one unique thing about these books when compared to the earlier books, and that's that these books are written from the perspective of exile. 
Everything we saw earlier was written by people who in that day were leading forward into exile. And this was written from the perspective of those being in exile or the perspective of those who have returned to the land out of exile. When you read First and Second Chronicles, you'll wonder if the authors made a mistake because it sounds a lot like First and Second Kings. But again, it's distinct because they are writing with an intent to teach people from the perspective of exile. They're teaching people just as someone who would write living in the days living up to World War II would write about the current events differently than those who lived after World War II. They're helping you see more bits of these pieces and pictures so that you might understand it better. And there are two primary themes we see all over in these books. The books of Daniel and Esther outline the first theme, and that is the preservation of God's people in the midst of foreign nations and foreign threats. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and to a lesser degree, First and Second Chronicles, outline God's restoration of his people. That is how God is remaking his people spiritually according to his promise. And so we're going to look at those two themes, the preservation of God's people and the restoration of God's people. And we're going to begin with the preservation of his people in the books of Daniel and Esther. And the book of Daniel begins framing the context. They are in exile. They are in Babylon. And what King Nebuchadnezzar has desired to do is to assimilate all of the Jewish wise men, all of the young, bright Jews into a Babylonian culture. You see, the words of Deuteronomy 4 are already ringing in our minds when we get to Daniel 1, because what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is he's trying to purge any remaining Jewishness, any remaining worship of God out of the people by making them thoroughly Babylonian. Now, in Jeremiah 29, we see that God tells his people to seek the welfare of the city. God encourages those in exile to to build houses, to marry, to plant vineyards, to live as Babylonian citizens. But all of this was to happen while maintaining distinction in terms of their worship, by still continuing to worship and obey the God of the covenant. They were to be in exile, fully there, fully present, but also fully distinct. And this is important for us even today. For look at how Paul speaks of the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you see the dual citizenship that even we in the New Testament church have today? God's people are in Ephesus. They are Ephesian. But what else are they? Faithful in Christ Jesus. God's people often live amidst a mixed people. But the worship of God's people, the allegiance of God's people, and the love of God's people should never be mixed. But this is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do in the early pages of Daniel. But what happens is despite Nebuchadnezzar's attempts, Daniel and his three friends grow in Babylonian knowledge, Babylonian literature, Babylonian politics, and Babylonian influence, yet they remain faithful in the Lord. They are God-fearing every step of the way. And we see this in three specific phases in the first part. In Daniel chapter one, they refuse to eat the king's meat and wine as an example of their purity to God. And God delivers them. They grow stronger than those who eat meat and wine. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship the king's idol. 
and they are saved from the fiery furnace. In Daniel 6, Daniel himself refuses to stop praying to the Lord of Israel. And as a result, he is cast into the lion's den, but he is delivered. Have you ever felt torn between a feeling of belonging to Christ and living in your present world? As a college student, do you wonder what it looks like to walk the line of being Christian but being in the dorms? Have you wondered what it looks like to be in a workspace that seems so godless, but also you're called to be in step with the Holy Spirit? Have you ever wondered what it looks like to make progress in all the relational and economic and outward benchmarks of success that the world gives you, while all the while trying to prioritize what it means to be Christian? If you've ever felt that tension, then you also feel what the book of Daniel shows us, and that's the power of the forces which oppose you. To step out in faith and to live allegiance to God or allegiance to Jesus versus the world very quickly will put you at odds with the power forces of the world. You feel the weight of their authority, of their might, and of their displeasure towards you. But this is where the book of Daniel, specifically the last half, comforts us. The last half of the book of Daniel is a collection of prophecies. And we'll talk more about how we interpret these in a couple weeks when we get to the book of Revelation. But the prophecies, some of these prophecies are very clear in the book. And they're explained to us. And we say, thank you, Lord. Some of these other prophecies are vague to us. And they're vague to Daniel. And Daniel doesn't know what to do with them as he wrestles with the weight of these future events. But what are these meant to produce in Daniel and to produce in us? Well, there's one key prophecy that is the spine of what's going on in the book of Daniel. And we see this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 18. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now remember that idea of destroyed, we're in Daniel 7, what we read earlier is Daniel chapter 2. So kingdoms being destroyed is ripe in our mind. This rock is going to wreck everything. But here's a kingdom that will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. The reader of Daniel will often empathize with that emotion. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So what do we see here? Well, Daniel is between two worlds. He sees the vision of one called the Ancient of Days. And to him comes one called the Son of Man. And the Son of Man will inherit and establish a kingdom forever. And he sees this picture of four nations, Babylon and four others that will rise and fall. But in the end, God's kingdom endures. It'll happen perfectly according to God's plan. Despite all the power that stands between you and obedience in the world, God's power will rule in the end. Despite all the nations, all the authorities that seek to threaten your allegiance in Christ Jesus while you live as citizens in Missoula, that there is one 
that will endure. One that will live forever. To be in God is to be on the right side of history. Part of what Daniel's vision shows is that even as God's 70 years of exiles finish, there is in the latter portions of Daniel the establishment of a season of weeks. That is, even though exile is going to end, there's a season of years where nations will rise and fall. But in the end, this son of man will come and he will rule over all things. When will this happen? Daniel himself asks that exact same question. How many of you have cried out, how long, O Lord? How long do we endure with this? How long do the nations rise and fall? But look at what the angel says to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. When we read these books of prophecy, we might say, how long and what does this mean? But what does God's word say? Go your way. Walk in the way of the Lord. Trust Jesus. Cling to obedience. It means when we face powerful opposition that threatens our faithfulness, we walk in faithfulness to God. And what do we know? What Job said last week, that we will stand in the presence of God at our place. That I know my Redeemer lives. And even when my body and flesh go away, I will stand before God. You see, Babylon and her furnaces fell. Nero and his Colosseum died. But all who stand in God will shine like stars of righteousness forever. That's the confidence the book of Daniel gives. This is displayed all the more in the book of Esther. Interestingly, and perhaps famously so, if you grew up in the church, the book of Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the word God is never brought up. The God of Israel is absent from the book, but when you read it, the God of Israel is everywhere in this book. You see, Esther, living in exile, was a Jewish woman taken lustfully by the foreign king, uh, Ashurus. And she was taken because she was beautiful. And because King Ashurus's former queen displeased him, he cast her aside and chose the winner of a massive nationwide beauty contest, and Esther was the winner. However, Esther was advised by her uncle Mordecai to conceal the fact that she was a Jew. And so Ashurus didn't know this. He didn't know she was a Jew. And simultaneously, as the story goes on, one of Ashurus's own officials named Haman plays King Ashurus into signing an edict in which on one specific day, all of the Jews in the kingdom would be killed. And this is because Haman, full of himself, was marching down the street and there was one Jewish man, one Jewish man who just happened to be named Mordecai, who just happened to be the uncle of a woman who just happened to be the newly acquired queen, Queen Esther, in King Ashurus' palace. And as Haman walked by, Mordecai refused to worship him. And this made Haman livid. And this is why he went to the king and said that there's this dangerous people who will not worship things and we ought to put them to death. Mordecai heard of this and he appealed to Esther to go to the king. But Esther reminded how she got there, that it was a queen who disobeyed the king who was put out of the kingdom. She knew that according to the customs of the day, that if a queen went into the king without being asked, that she would be put to death. So how would Esther, a woman with not much clout, 
have any merit to go before the king and to petition that he undo the word that he just gave, that he gets egg on his face, so to speak, undoing law that he just spoke into existence. So would this be the end of God's story? Brought into exile by their sin, killed off by the devious decisions of Haman, brought to a new nation, left with nothing but a mere woman who had no voice before the world's most powerful king. But look at what Mordecai says to Esther in Esther 4, verses 12 through 16. Then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And so they're using kind of these servants as interchanges between the two. This is what Mordecai says to Esther. Do not think that yourself in the king's palace will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai trusted in the promise of God, even against his own flesh. Did you see it? He knew that whether through Esther or whether through another, even if it demanded his own flesh, that God would deliver his people. Why? Because God had promised. There's an eternal kingdom at stake. He is God over all of history. He would not allow the Jews to perish. Being reminded of God's promise, Esther trusted God. She approached the king, and the king extended to her his scepter of mercy. This king heard what Esther said about the Jews, and he did something about it. He reversed the roles. On that day when all of the Jews' enemies were to kill them, he gave Jews license to rise up against their enemies. The same gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai, on them Haman himself was hung. By the power of God through a pagan nation, Israel's enemies were defeated. In a foreign land with no political power, no king on the throne, God saved his people through what? Foreigners even. And see, here we see how God was going to preserve his people. And it's remarkably easy for us to miss the application of this preservation in our lives and in our Bible reading. Take, for instance, something called the Daniel diet. In Daniel chapter 1, he eats only fruits and vegetables, drinks only water, and is stronger at the end. And there's this diet you could do, and frankly, I don't care if you decide to live this way. It could be good for your health. Veggies are good. Water's I hate water, but you should drink it. The Lord has told us to. If you want to do that, that's great. Um, But to read this story and think that Daniel was made stronger than those who ate meat and wine because of his diet misses the whole story. It misreads God's amazing provision. To come away thinking there's something magical about the veggies in the water is to come away with the hope of Nebuchadnezzar himself. That his great kingdom is his power and his preservation. You see, when Esther came before God, it was not because of her beauty that she was extended the scepter, but it was because of her faithfulness to God. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
went to the fiery furnace, they were not delivered because they had raw optimism that the flames won't hurt and the furnace wouldn't be hot. It was because God was faithful to them in the midst of their reliance on God's sovereign power to save. We never have to compromise in order to belong. We never have to sin in order to be preserved. Why? Because our God is faithful to preserve his people according to his promise. God preserves his people for his promise remains. Now the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and to a lesser degree, Chronicles focus not merely on God's preservation of his people, but develop it all the more. They talk about the restoration of God's people. And that's what we turn to now, God's restoration of his people. Because God was faithful to preserve them in exile, he was faithful to bring them back to the promised land. Why? Because that's what God said. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah follow along as King Cyrus frees Israel to return to the promised land, but it was not enough that they simply return. They needed to be restored. That's because when Babylon came into Jerusalem in 587 BC, they ransacked the walls and they completely devastated the temple. And in a remarkable affirmation of God's sovereignty, in the book of Isaiah, God says through his prophet Isaiah that for 70 years, you'll be in exile. That exactly 70 years after the temple is destroyed by Babylon, the temple is rebuilt at the hand of Ezra. God is faithful. In the book of Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. Even though the people had been freed, many were scared to return to Jerusalem because they were exposed to the nations. They were at danger. Anyone could march into the city and take and kill as they desired. But Nehemiah calls them to trust in God's promise to come and rebuild the wall, and God is favorable to their faithfulness in the face of physical harm. And here's how beautiful Scripture's story is. This is the benefit of seeing this as a story of God's faithfulness. Do you remember what happened when God first brought his people out of Egypt? How they plundered the Egyptians. And how did they plunder the Egyptians? The Egyptians offered to them as Israel was leaving all their gold and silver. Which is so cool because everything that God's going to ask them to make in the tabernacle and the temple furnishings, God had provided for them at the hand of the Egyptians. Isn't that so great? God always provides what he asks of you in the gospel. You're always able because God always provides. And in the same way, when God delivers his people out of exile in Babylon, what does King Cyrus say? Whatever you need for the temple from all the storehouses of Babylon is yours. Take it and build the temple. God is faithful. Do you remember what happened when Israel stood at the gateway to the promised land and they looked in, what did they fear? Big walls and tall people. And what did Moses say? Trust in God. These walls are nothing. Your security is not in the walls. Your enemy is not the nations. It's the unbelief in your own heart. And just as Moses called the Israelites to trust in God in the face of the walls that were there, Nehemiah called Israel to return in light of the walls that were not there. God is faithful. But interestingly, these physical restoration projects take up less than half of each of these books. It's not about the external. 
The remainder of these books track the real work of restoration that God is working in his people. In order to be God's people, in God's place, in God's presence, they couldn't simply rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. They needed to rebuild their worship. In the same way that, you know, putting on your Sunday best and coming to church in a newly constructed building and sitting here for however long we stand and sit and sing and listen means nothing apart from the inner sense of worship that accompanies it. And consider Nehemiah's prayer where he identifies this problem clearly and listen to his language of promise and word in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through the first part of 11. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being the king. And so Nehemiah calls on what? He calls on the promise of God. He goes all the way back to Moses. He quotes the law itself. He knew that God would redeem his people by faithfully restoring their worship and having them put their sins away. Through repentance, a way was made forward. And both books of Ezra and Nehemiah highlight religious and worship reform. In Ezra, the people grieve over these idolatrous marriages that they have, marrying other nations and and taking their worship into their own home. And they put away those relationships. In Nehemiah, the people stop oppressing the poor. The priests stop practicing for their own selfish gain. The Sabbath is upheld and people stop profaning it. There is great reform in the area of worship. God's people are now back in God's place and they are beginning to look like God's people again. But what led to this spiritual restoration? A rediscovery of God's word. Preserved by his promise, restored by God's word. King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the government ruling over them, sent Ezra back to Jerusalem to teach God's word to God's people. And look at what it says of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Can you believe it? The king of another nation sent God's servant back to God's place to teach God's people his word. God is faithful, even through a godless king. In the book of Chronicles, we step back in time and it's looking at the history prior to captivity. You see the rise and fall of Israel's good kings and bad kings. And with some of the good kings, we read of sweeping reform. 
Good kings like Jotham, Josiah, and Hezekiah. But what you'll notice as you read through these books is that each reform always has something that happens prior to it. And what is that something? Some scribe is cleaning up some dungeon somewhere and uncovers the law of the Lord. And they're like, what is this? And so they take it to the king. And the king reads it. And when they read God's law, when they read God's word, change follows. They are struck by the weight of their sin. They are struck by the glory of God and his promise. In Nehemiah, Ezra and others begin to preach God's word to God's people and the result is absolute brokenness over their sin. In the book, the people are grieving openly in the streets. If you choose to do that under my preaching, that's great. I'm not asking for it, but it'd be a good, you know, helpful encouragement. The law convicted them that despite the city being rebuilt, their hearts were not. Despite the sparkling temple, their sins were many. But look at what Nehemiah says to his people in Nehemiah 8 verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who is governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. You hear Daniel show up there again. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For the day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. What's the profound beauty here in this text? That even though the discovery of God's word brings with it condemnation for your sins, it also brings with it the promise of hope. That out of mourning of what God's word says about the debilitating damnation of your sins is the overwhelming hope of God's mercy, that his word makes a way. There is deep joy in understanding not only the bad news of our sin, but the good news of God's promise to restore us in worship through faith and repentance on account of Jesus Christ. God's word will come to God's people and those who are struck by it will also be healed through it. You see, this is why we're committed to expository preaching here at Sovereign Hope. To exposit means to exhume, to bring out what God's word has already done there. God works through his word. His word changes people. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra and others read the law, and then it says they gave sense to the words so the people could understand it. That's all we're doing when we preach expositionally at Sovereign Hope. We read it. We find out what it means and we realize that it is already applicable to our lives. That we don't need to invent meaning. We don't need to read with a newspaper in hand. We don't need to respond to whatever pop culture TV show is out there right now. That this is sufficient. To discover it brings meaningful change. To hear it convicts our souls. To believe it brings healing to our bodies. If you want to be changed, if you want hope for restoration, if you want the promise of God's transformative grace, you find it in his word because Jesus is at the center. 
But here's where the book of Chronicles introduces us to a bit of weighted optimism at the very end. You might wonder, again, when you read First and Second Chronicles, why am I reading this again and why now? Why did the Hebrews choose to end their Old Testament with this? Tracking the good kings and the bad kings, but then there's this paragraph which is seemingly unfitting until we understand the story. Look at how Second Chronicles ends. Chapter 36, verses 22 and following. Now in the first year of King Cyrus, or of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And that's the end of the Hebrew Old Testament. So why here? Why did they choose to end it here? Because it gives both optimism and concern. Optimism that the Lord will do it. That God has kept his word. God was faithful to bring his people back to the promised land. He has struck down. He has thrown, struck down. He has destroyed, but he has also replanted and he has rebuilt. But what's the concern? Certainly the hero of God's story is not Cyrus, king of Persia. We have seen that it was through the line of David that God would rebuild a house. Who is Cyrus? Is your hope in the world? Have you ever wondered that? The world can do wonderful things. Wealth can give great security. Relationships can provide profound intimacy. Family can provide great stability. Vacations can provide wonderful things. But are those the saviors of your story? Does the last page of your Bible say, okay, I guess this is it. Let's take it for what it is. But we know this can't be it. Because what we've seen up until this point is that no king has God's word so near to his heart that preservation and restoration actually happen. And this is where we transition to our final point this morning, to savor the savior of the story. The Old Testament ends here with a stunning portrait of what happens when God's people recover God's word and are changed by God's promise. God preserved his people by his promise and through his word, he was continuing his work of restoration. And this is not lost on us when we see how John introduces Jesus in his gospel. Consider verses 14 through 18 of John chapter one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Here's one who is from ancient of days. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. In Jesus, the word becomes flesh. In Jesus, the word that brings reform became human to live among us. The promise became a person. 
In Jesus, we have hope for the receipt of what? What can you hope for in Jesus? Grace, grace upon grace, transformative grace, preserving grace, restorative grace. Remember the stone cut from a mountain without hands that toppled the world's governments. Look at what Jesus says about himself in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Just as David hurled a stone and stuck, struck down the power of the giant, just as Nebuchadnezzar's image and the legacy of human rulers would be smashed to pieces by the stone cut from the mountain of God, Jesus is God's stone of David, launched throughout human history to dash the power of nations and to preserve those who would be faithful to him. Here is the preservation of all who have wondered, is God faithful? Here, God is faithful. In Jesus, all of the years of our exile make sense. In Jesus, all the years of our exile find an end. And did you notice what Jesus said in Matthew? What does he appeal to? Do you know the scriptures? Now, let the reader understand, in Matthew 21, there was no New Testament. <laughs> they didn't have those books. What did they have? The Old Testament, what we were just looking at. You know how many times the word Jesus is mentioned in the Old Testament? None. Not according to this Jesus. But what does Jesus say? I'm there. I'm everywhere. In fact, what do you think Jesus would want you to know about his word if he showed up here today? If the resurrected Christ walked with you to your car, what would he want to teach you? You realize that he did that with some people at the end of the book of Luke. And look at the conversation he had with them. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How does Jesus want you to know him? Where does he want you to see him? On every single page. It's what makes the good news good. It's what makes hope shine when you feel Babylon is never-ending. This is a book about Jesus and the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man who comes to judge the nations and to deliver his people. Here is the Messiah who will put the rulers and powers of the world in final subjection to him so that one day God's people might flourish in his kingdom forever. That though things will get hard and they will get worse, 
We rest in Jesus who has already defeated it. Here is the one who restores our hearts, not by rebuilding a wall, but by tearing a curtain, by releasing the presence of God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people as he was pierced for their sins. Do you want this faithfulness? Do you want a promise that speaks into your feelings of being separated, cut off, accursed, trapped? Then come to Jesus. Come to him and see that this story makes sense of your problem and worship him. Submit your lives to him. This is what we'll look at next week. We turn to study the gospels. This is what we'll turn to right now as we reflect in taking the Lord's Supper. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. We ask that we continue in worship this morning, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to know, therefore, this day and to lay it up in our hearts that you are the Lord and there is none other in heaven above or in earth beneath and that we see you most clearly, are saved by you most sufficiency and are restored by you most effectually in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.